0: A year of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 16. A warning for the sensitive. In this episode, the word fisting will be used. You may wish to skip to part 17. Monday, Jaleel. He came for a massage and was a handsome man with a sweet smile. Not a lad, but a man in his thirties, with a sense of humour. He was chatty and matey, and experienced and confident, which was a nice change. We had a real conversation. We also had excellent sex. Jalil had a good trim body, and when I got to unwrap it, a huge cock. Sorry if that makes me sound superficial, just accept it as fact. He did, it was. He was in possession of an outstanding example of its genre, thick and mighty, smashing and proud. And yet he didn't need me to devote much time to it, as, like Furkan, he wanted to focus on mine. In fact, he wasn't crazy about my blowjob technique, as my teeth bothered him. Sorry, but I wanted to rip his boner from his body and gnaw my gnashes into it. He was lucky he got only a few nips. He was also not on the same page as me when it came to the verbal stuff. As you know, I've become quite fond of a bit of dirty discourse, along the lines of let me into your tight ass, or take my big piece of meat, boy. Nothing intellectually challenging, you understand. Fill my tight hole is a perfectly adequate response, with or without Daddy. We're not talking literature. But Jalil preferred silence. At one point in our workout, as I was performing some of my finest routines, he turned to look at me over his shoulder and gave me a cool smile of disapproval. He shook his head, meaning... Cut the corny crap, and I got the message. But it wasn't easy, fucking, without the cheap dialogue. I had to talk a bit, though, to check in with him. Jaleel was one of those men whose features express pleasure with a contortion that could have doubled as extreme pain to an observer. Oh. Are you OK? Oh, yes, great. Ah, good. Right, so take my big... Oh, no, sorry. Two minutes later. Ah. Uh, oh, shall I stop? No. Ah, I love this. Oh, good. So you love my huge... Oh, no, no, sorry. As if someone had mixed up the subtitles and assigned the wrong ones to the images on the screen. The other slightly odd aspect was that every twenty minutes or so he needed to puff a joint. Not my thing, I didn't keep any dope, but it was fine by me at his place in Islington at future meetings if that was what he needed. Jaleel would say, Hang on remove me from inside him with business-like efficiency, get a partly-smoked spliff from a nearby table and head towards the bathroom. If I lay back on the bed, he'd say, "'Come,' handing me the vodka and Red Bull he'd mixed for me earlier, and we'd stand by the basin so he could have a few drags and exhale through the open window, before spritzing the air freshener around. It was the only place he could comfortably indulge without his landlord knowing. Then we'd return to the bed, actually a mattress on the floor, for round two— then he might get a message and have to take some items to his landlord who lived next door. Then round three. Then he needed another smoke. Then a pea. Then more vodka. I began to wonder if he wanted sex at all. He did, but he needed to control all aspects, not leave anything to organic chance. Finally, we completed all the rounds until we reached our destination. After the Rishes and Clydes and Tommies and Navines, time spent horizontally with Jalil felt great. It was right up there with Furkan and Willy. It was hot and horny, safe and sexy. He even had a brain. I confess I didn't understand a hundred percent of what he said, because of his strong accent, but it was more than half, way more than half. Our pillow talk on that first Monday was socio-political. I wasn't sure where he was from, and he made me guess. From his name and inflections and skin tone, I was going for Egypt or Syria or Jordan. No. Which is the biggest country in Africa? Um, now that Sudan has been divided, of course. Of course, um, I should know. I didn't. Algeria. Right. So we had a discussion about Algerian politics. No, really, we did. I knew a little, very little, such as the name of the president, Abdelaziz Bouteflika, and how to pronounce it correctly. That seemed to impress him. He gave me quite a lot more detail about the current state of politics in North Africa than I realised I needed, but it was okay to file it away in the might-come-in-handy-one-day part of my brain. Jalil told me about the death of his mother when he was one year old, and his decision, a few years ago, to seek political asylum in the UK. It seems that in his country to be a gay man was tolerated if you were a top. Excuses would be made along the lines of it's just because he can't find a woman, you'd be forgiven your choice of a male partner because at least you were active doing the fucking but to be a bottom to desire penetration being passive getting fucked no no that was unforgivable despicable you were worthy only of shame and contempt such was the case for jalil he had to flee his family and his culture and seek safety in london i had no concept of how tough that must have been when he explained i felt humbled chastened that I'd had any condescending, patronising thoughts about his manners or attitudes. How dare I! If my banal sex script was offensive to him, I could happily fuck in silence, and did with him many more times. I even stocked up on Red Bull and bought a bottle of vodka. It was no hardship to let him smoke weed in my flat. Even if I'd had a sense of smell, I'd have let him. He deserved nothing but my esteem and regard.' Tuesday. Said. His photo online was intriguing. Handsome, as far as I could tell. At first there was only half a face, as he said he was discreet. I felt peeved by his coyness, and pointed out that thousands of people in London see his face every day as he goes about his business, and yet he wanted me to meet him and offer a massage, probably with sex, without knowing what he looked like. He conceded, and let me see him clearly. Gorgeous. I was glad I hadn't scared him off. But when we met at the tube I felt distinctly cheated. He was much less attractive in life than online, and he seemed very, very nervous. I was still residually pissed off with him for trying to remain anonymous, and now I wanted to add, you're not even that hot, just relax for God's sake. He came in, we had a glass of wine and the briefest of chats before moving on to the massage. When he took his shirt off I was aware of something odd an awkwardness, a self-conscious movement, but I didn't look directly. It was only when he lay down on his front, ready for me to begin, that he said, I have a lot of scars, but it's okay, they don't hurt. It was true, a lot of scars, a series of long dark purple lines, raised like sections of electrical flecks, some parallel to each other, and some slashed across in another direction, like dramatic makeup in a horror film but these were very real. I asked if he wanted to tell me about them. He did, with his face down through the hole in the table, talking towards the floor. I squatted down to make sure I heard every word. His English wasn't fluent, but it didn't need to be. He told me he'd been in a car accident, in October 2015. He didn't give me many further details, but in that moment all my cynicism, annoyance and frustration with him melted away. I told Said I'd been in a road-traffic accident, too, in December 2015. I don't have any physical scars, I said, but plenty of psychological ones. I didn't see his face. He didn't see mine. But as I laid my hands gently on his damaged body, I felt I was honouring his experience, soothing his pain. When I turned him onto his back, I discovered more dramatic marks on his thigh, a similar arrangement of dark lines but also with patches of raspberry-coloured wounds where the skin had puckered and torn. I touched them softly, as if greeting them, hoping to reassure Saeed that I would care for him, and I hope I did. In my own body I felt a faint resonance of Nathan and his skills in putting me back together. Eventually we moved on to the bed and he wanted to come. I sucked him for a long time, but I felt no impatience now. I gave him a first-class blowjob, and it had an extra nuance of empathy, given the crossover of our lives. I knew we'd never meet again. I replayed all the earlier aspects of our meeting through the lens of his trauma, and felt lucky to have shared that time with him. Thank you, Saeed. Go well, Saeed. Stay safe. Wednesday, ALF In fact, Alfonso from Spain. Nice accent, cute face. He asked for my address, but I insisted we meet at the tube station for the walk of decision. On two occasions, out of the hundred or so, a young man said, both times as I was hanging up my coat, You're not going to kill me, are you? Both times I replied, No, you're not going to rob me, are you? Slightly bizarre, but they felt it was necessary to ask, and I felt it necessary to answer that question. Whether they'd been personally touched by the case of Stephen Port, I don't know. But in the gay community it would surely have been impossible not to be aware of the serial murderer and rapist who'd been found guilty of killing at least four men he'd met on Grindr, after giving them a dose of the date-rape drug GHB. Now he was in Belmarsh Jail for the rest of his life. Eleven young men were known to be victims of his murder, rape and sexual assault. I did know someone... A really close friend, who had met Port some years earlier and been to a party of his. He'd socialized a bit with him, gone to the theater together, and my mate had taken pictures of him for a college project. Port, in his mid-forties, had killed young men in their twenties. My friend had been twenty-seven when he met and photographed Port. Many times the what-if has passed through my head, and I see the images of Port in his leather jacket posing against a doorway, solemn and dramatic not attractive, slightly bovine, but undoubtedly striking. Who'd have thought? Who could have known? A casual meeting in a bar, a chat, a drink. Perhaps that's exactly why these lads had that question on their lips. You're not going to kill me, are you? How sensible, but how naive. They all made the judgment on the two-minute walk, and from the communication we'd had beforehand, that I could be trusted. Or if they had doubts, that they could look after themselves, just as I was gently weighing them up too. But to be honest, only whether they were nice, sexy, interesting or odd, not whether they were a danger to my life. Of the two who did ask about my potentially homicidal intentions, one followed me into the kitchen, but fortunately was still far enough behind not to see what I saw. On the work surface lay the large chopping-knife I'd used earlier to slice and dice vegetables. Was that really only beetroot juice on the blade?' I slid it into a drawer, sharpish, and got the wine from the fridge. So Alfonso agreed to meet me at the tube station. He was something of a surprise. There was more of him than I expected. As we walked along the pavement he stumbled a couple of times, and then, when crossing the road, he hesitated, not following my lead but checking several times there was no traffic. Odd, I thought. We got into the lift, and in the brightly lit space I noticed two things— Yes, he had a cute face, but there was an awful lot of body below that. And he was wearing a badge. I asked him about it. I have restricted vision, he said. Oh, the stumbles, the hesitation, the request to make his own way to my flat not have to walk together in the dark. And worse, I dismissed him as too fat and therefore not sexy. Shit, what an absolute bastard I was! We chatted. I gave the massage and tried to do a good job, but with no personal vibe it was functional. How did it progress? I'm not sure. It was friendly and I was kind. Did I fuck him? I've no idea. One of us came, but I forget which. Afterwards I walked him to the tube, slowly and with care. We were polite and gracious. Alfonso and I would not be meeting again. We both knew that. thursday no sex friday fukan came round again he lives with his boyfriend but works near me so this was always going to be a lunchtime shag as before he called me daddy in each sentence he said he wanted me to take control but showed me precisely what he needed me to do and say earlier when we'd set up the date i'd suggested another role play for how we could meet i said he could be on a bench in the square near my flat I'd approach, sit down, and then notice he looked sad. I'd ask if he was all right, and he'd tell me he'd been thrown out of home for watching gay porn. He'd say he was cold and hungry. I'd offer him a good meal and hot bath, etc., etc. Come on, I know, it's cheesy, but it's just right. But Furkan refused, saying that my scenario brought back painful memories of exactly that, being expelled from home as a child. Ah, right, OK, sorry. (laughs) No role-play, then. No massage, either.' This time it was a brief chat about a medical conference on principles and morality, and then straight into the bedroom for sex. I'm not complaining. Very good sex it was, too, lots of dirty daddy-son talk, and, as before, I fucked him. His huge brown eyes were still seductive, his luxuriant moustache still made me smile, but the package was of a handsome young man who knew what he wanted and was not shy to request it. He wanted to get fucked, and then requested, in his backhanded way, a pause in the action. Are you wanting to stop for a while, Daddy? Is that what you'd like?' So we lay side by side and chatted. Now we were adult and adult. He told me with pride about his book deal, getting his PhD thesis published. We discussed medical ethics, psychotherapy, professional boundaries, PTSD, and his questions about whether trauma can be inherited. I said I didn't think so, although anxiety could be absorbed. He talked about his own mother and his belief that he had certain character traits due to events that had happened to her, not to him. He had clearly been wounded by things that still had their grip on him. Fokan checked his watch and said he had to go. I was fine with that, all of that. The filthy fun and the non-sex chat. It was all respectful, affectionate and decent. He was becoming a fuck-buddy. SATURDAY I'd finished work at 2 a.m. the night before, and agreed to meet up with a young man called Robert. He'd called me Sir a few times online, and he had thick, luxuriant hair. In our pre-meet chat, he'd said something about enjoying a morning brew and a cuddle. This had a different feel to it. I was intrigued and liked him already. We met at the Brazilian café near me, the one I never got to take Gabrielli to, my first date on this merry-gay round. Robert was pleasant enough, but he had a very strong, scouse accent. I know it shouldn't have made such a difference, but it did. There was no way he could be my innocent lad, with a voice as knowing and world-weary as that. I'd be expecting him to tell dry jokes about body parts. It would be like shagging Lily Savage. We had a good yak about our jobs and London and the political climate. Bloody Brexit gets in everywhere. He was a trainee civil servant, had worked in Iraq and Libya, and said he found the UK a bit boring. Well, excuse me. Despite our delayed meeting, caused by his being late, another black mark, I was still up for the cuddle he had suggested. Ignore the accent, Johnty, Focus on the hair. And then Robert announced that he had to go and meet colleagues. He checked his phone a few times. I felt disappointed. Not because he was the cutest man in the world, but the notion of a naked morning cuddle had been dangled before me, and then snatched away. Ah, oh, well. Still, I was meeting Ally later anyway. We had arranged for half two at the tube. I was there by two thirty, of course. I waited and waited and waited. I checked the messages on my phone. Yes, this was exactly what we'd agreed. I waited half an hour and sent a message. I waited half an hour. Then came Ally's profuse apologies. He thought we'd exchanged numbers and was waiting for a WhatsApp message from me to confirm things no. It had all been settled on good old Grinder. I was pissed off, but I was glad it was fuck uppery and not bastardness. Several times he promised me he wasn't that guy. Magnanimity itself. I gave him a second chance and invited him to the naked swimming group on Sunday. He said he would. Then he wasn't sure. Cold feet? Lack of funds. He said he'd think about it. And did he come? Did he cobblers? They never do. Never. Apart from, well apart from the one who did. I'll come on to Pedro later. He would prove to be quite the exception in so many ways. But there's a long list of names to get through first. Bear with. <music> Incidentally, I was wrong about Alfonso. Spanish, visually impaired. I thought we were on the same page about not wanting to meet up again. Well, no. He got in touch to ask if we could have part two. I was kind but clear in saying no thanks. I said I was out of action for a while. Now this could mean any one of a hundred things, but if he took it to be code for I have a sexually transmitted infection and am on a course of antibiotics, that was fine with me. God, I hate myself sometimes. Only sometimes I can hear friends say. Ali turned down the naked swim but said he'd like to meet after that for a massage again we agreed what time we'd both be at the tube station again 2:30 p.m. I was he wasn't again he was late very late he messaged to say he was ordering the cab the cab hadn't turned up the cab was lost he was now in the cab he was at islington he was at king's cross king's cross i'm bloody furious I walked over to the other side of the road to stand in bright sunshine, and that did at least help a bit. Then Allie said I shouldn't wait any longer. Go home, and I'll come to you. Although it wasn't my habit to give my address too early in proceedings, on this occasion I went home and waited, checking the table, the oils, the towels, the towels, the oils, the table. Our 2.30 meeting was going to happen, if it happened at all, at 4.30, and I had work at 7.30. He buzzed. Come on up to the third floor. He went to the fourth and got lost. Finally, finally, he found my flat. In the instant he came through the door and apologised, my irritation evaporated. He was good-looking and friendly, but I couldn't understand everything he said. Not because he wasn't fluent in English, he was, but he muttered and mumbled so much. Still, this wasn't an elocution class. I felt sure he'd get his tongue round the essentials. We chatted, we drank wine, and then came the massage. And I'm sorry to say, although you may be glad, it was another of those where few details remain in my mind. I'm certain there was nothing off the scale, either amazing or horrible, as I'd remember that. He did love to kiss, that I'm sure of. He was passionate, always a plus in my book. He loved to be rimmed. Who doesn't? Well, me. Did I fuck him? Yes, I think I probably did. I nearly fisted him, too. Now, that's something I've only ever done once. It was at a club in the nineties, somewhere in Vauxhall, under the railway arches. In the play area, there were two or three guys on all fours on a bench, their arses in the air. Latex gloves and sachets of lube were handy on a nearby table. I did the polite thing, and gave one of the men what he was waiting for. I added a bit of filthy talk along the lines of, Yeah, is that what you want? Feels great, doesn't it? He turned his head around a little and said lazily over his shoulder, ''Hm, it's all right. Oh, the romance of it.'' With Ali it was nearly, but not quite. We chatted again after the sex. He noticed something on the blackboard in my kitchen, ''Oliver W.T.F..'' I'd written it there after a recent conversation with him that had left me confused, more confused than usual. He first asked if it stood for ''Wednesday, Thursday, Friday.'' (laughs) I explained that Oliver was my ex, that word. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that a recent break-up? Um, not that recent. Have some more wine. Don't rush me. I'm still getting used to saying ex. It's only six years since he left. Oh, and speaking of fisting... I've just remembered one bizarre online chat with a guy called Vincent, I think. We were talking about health and fitness and so on. He said he was doing this new intermittent 5-2 diet, where you eat as much as you like for five days, and then nothing at all for the other 48 hours. Or as he put it, five days of feasting, followed by two days of fisting. Now, I assume it was a typo, and he meant fasting, but he disappeared soon after that, so I shall never know. Well... If you try it, do let me know. It had been quite a week. Sweet Jalil, Scarred Said, Stumbling Alfonso, Scouser Robert, Sexy Furkan and Chaotic Ali. But next week would be even busier, with a surprising twist. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. The music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a protocol production.